You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one podcast for all things communication, advertising, and marketing. I'm your host, Ted Lau, award-winning agency owner, podcaster, and full-time dad. Today, we have with us my friend, Sarah Goldvine, Vice President of Communications for BC Housing. Sarah brings broad experience from the public, nonprofit, and private sectors to her role as VP of Communications with BC Housing. She has a track record of affecting meaningful change in purpose-driven organizations through leadership roles with Coast Capital Savings, TVO, Toronto Community Housing, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, and the BC Legislature. Outside of work, Sarah serves on the Board of Governors for the Business Council of BC and the Board of Directors for the Cedar Cottage Food Network. She holds an accreditation in public relations designation from the Canadian Public Relations Society, has a Master of Communications Management from McMaster University, and a Bachelor of Arts Political Science with Honours from the University of British Columbia. Sarah, welcome. Great to be here, Ted. Nice to see you. So you've done a lot of stuff from Toronto all the way out here in BC. Maybe let's hear a little bit about your origin story first and you know how you got to where you are today. Mm, I've had a more of a jungle gym approach to my career. So I mostly grew up in Nanaimo on Vancouver Island, middle-class white family in a middle-class white neighborhood. And I've had chronic illness since I was a child. And, you know, really for me, a, a lot of my childhood was very normal <laughs> for what you would expect. And I had a deep love of learning. So even though school didn't fit me that well, I landed in a great university program at UBC. And after my bachelor's went to go work at a think tank, I was going to do grad school, I was going to be an academic. Um, and then I fell into politics. <laughs> and I really love the opportunity to make change, not just study change. So I dropped out of grad school and went to work in politics. And once I was there, I really learned the importance of not only having good ideas, but mobilizing people to believe in them, which is how I got into communications. Worked in political communications for years and uh, was really, really fulfilling, but eventually it just needed to leave that for nonpartisan work. And I left BC for Ontario, where I worked, as you mentioned in the intro, in a number of different organizations, mostly in the broader public sector, just really focused on advancing systemic change for marginalized communities. Then one summer, we were out here in BC visiting family, and there was the opportunity to move back. So uh, within three weeks, we'd moved across the country, and I um, was working for a credit union, which was an amazing experience. And along the way, I'd had a couple of kids and I'd picked up a grad degree and my APR. And then after I'd been in BC for a bit, I was approached to take on this role at BC Housing. And I couldn't say no with the historic investment in housing. Really great role, really great team. Uh, joined BC Housing and six months later, the pandemic hit. And I would say that, you know, it's really driven for me over the last couple of years in particular, the recognition that we need to have great ideas. We need to move people to believe in those ideas. And we also need to have the right team to do all of that work. Um, and uh, that's what that's what keeps me going right now in my role. Wow, that's exciting. So, I mean, housing, that is a hot topic for any Canadian, not just mm -hmm. marketers uh, who are listening today. So how do you manage such a vast portfolio? And, and it can be quite political as well, right? And so, you know, tell me about your day and, and how you manage this whole thing. 
Well, it, a great team. One of the truly exciting things about BC Housing is it's a provincial agency. We work with more than 800 nonprofits, as well as dozens of private sector developers, construction companies, and others to deliver housing across the province. So we have 28,000 affordable homes either delivered or underway right now since 2017, which is just, you know, it's an exceptional commitment and investment by the people of British Columbia into addressing the housing crisis. And we also are delivering services on the ground to people who are experiencing crisis and homelessness, for example. So the way we do it is we we work with everybody. It's the really exceptional partnerships that that make it happen. And how do you contend with the you know the media is always talking about Vancouver is is one of the world's most unaffordable places to live. There is a homelessness issue. I'm not sure if that's the right term I'm supposed to use anymore, but that, you know, there is that that issue, especially in the, the lower mainland here. As the VP of comms, like how do you get the message out that there is change that's being affected? Mm-hmm. I would say that we are as transparent and honest and frank as we can be while also recognizing our role as, a, as an agency of government. And one of the things that we are really honest about is that this is a crisis. Housing is a crisis. Housing affordability is a crisis. It's a crisis that unites a lot of people. And not only across class barriers and you know other demographics, but also now right across the province, we're seeing housing affordability impact small towns to the point where people who've lived in those towns for their entire lives can no longer afford a roof over their heads. Or people who are in very, you know, very stable, good paying jobs can't afford the housing they need. And so that's our starting place, right? Is that we look to build bridges with people and tap into their empathy and then use that to really focus conversations on how we can work together to address the crisis in the short term, but then also ultimately the root causes of homelessness, which are, you know, the solutions to those root causes are about a heck of a lot more than housing. It's health, Mm -hmm. it's education, you know, it's everything. It's how we plan our cities, but those root causes ultimately are how we're going to get out of this crisis. And then so with regards to affordable housing and whatnot, we do at my agency, we've worked with a number of real estate developers. They talk about supply. There's not enough supply. We need more supply. And, and is that really the only issue there? Or there's got to be more than just that. You know, we hear about the money laundering and, and those kinds of things in the past. Can you shed some light on that? Absolutely. It's about supply, yes, but it's also about the right type of housing. So that's one of the reasons why in British Columbia, we invest in what we call the housing spectrum. So really what it means is different types of housing for different people. So yes, we provide homelessness outreach services. We provide shelters. We provide housing with support services for people who need some support and help to really maintain their housing. We also partner with the private sector. So we've got a $2 billion financing arm through Housing Hub, where we partner with nonprofits, community groups in the private sector, and are able to essentially lend out money for people to develop and build housing. And we flow through the savings from being able to borrow at government rates through to being able to provide affordability for people in communities through affordable rentals or affordable home ownership. So yes, it's about supply, but it's about the right type of housing that is affordable for people in communities right across the province who have different needs, right? Whether it's seniors, families, people experiencing homelessness, we need the full mix. 
So for you, when you started your career in communications, definitely, you know, you given your political background, you you are mm-hmm. somebody who is purpose driven for everything in, in their career. That that sounds like that's for you. And so did you ever think that when you were, you know, starting out in your career that you would end up in an organization like BC Housing doing stuff like this? Is that a part of the the grand plan? You kind of mentioned you were kind of ping-ponged around or what do you call it? The jungle gym. I think <laughs> what call it. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, Ted, I didn't even know communications was a thing when I graduated Me university neither. and started my career. So no, I didn't see myself in a role like this because I didn't know that doing this type of work was an option. And I think to be honest, that's part of the challenge with, with our industry is that young people don't necessarily understand how they can use marketing and communications to make a difference in community. And ultimately, we're living in an information era. There is this huge opportunity to tap into the information that we have and to be able to use it to actually mobilize people for systemic change. And that's what's united all of my experiences across my career is how do we mobilize people to make meaningful change in community? So that's been the thread. And by following that passion, I've landed in some exceptional opportunities and it's brought me to the work that I do now. So I think a lot of young folks that are pursuing a MarCom degree, marketing Mm -hmm. and or communications. (laughs) I remember when I was younger and in school and and I, I... I tell folks this. I, the reason why I did communications at my first course in communication university was not because I had an interest in comms. It was because in high school, communications was kind of remedial English and I needed to get my GPA up. So I took this course and then I you know, right away fell in love with it. But mm-hmm. not a lot of people still understand the distinction between marketing and communications, right? There is, there's a kind of a fine line there that I think industry people understand, but not a lot of folks, especially that are entering the workforce, they don't really have that grasp. So could you maybe shed some light as to the differences and why you chose comms as opposed to marketing? Yeah, I mean, I would say part of the answer is that most of my career has been in the public sector. And so right now, I marketing reports into me at BC Housing. And so I think part of it is the different ways in which we structure our work. And ultimately, though, what we need to be doing is learning from each other because there's so much that we can learn as communicators and marketers in terms of best practices and most effective techniques, how to engage with and reach our audiences to drive behavior change. Ultimately, that unites us. So I've been in some very, very heated arguments about the differences between them. Ultimately, I think it's more a matter of semantics and it shifts based on the organization you're in, I'm more focused on what the work is that we're doing than the label. Oh, very nice. That's a great answer. So help me understand rule number five. So for those of you who may creep on Sarah's LinkedIn profile, she has a post which she talks about rule number five. And I'd like to ask you about that, please. Okay. Yes. So a bit of context. On my first day at BC Housing, I pulled the team together. They'd been through a lot of change and had been through some pretty rough times. So I pulled them all together in the boardroom and I sat them down and I said, here are the things that you could hold me accountable for as leader over the next few months. And people only really remember number five because number five is my no assholes policy. Ultimately, you know, for me, it's the recognition that we all have bad days. We all screw up. Goodness knows I do. And what I don't have patience for is 
a lack of recognition of that, right? So if you screw up, own up to it, make it better, right? We're in this together. And ultimately, if we're going to be successful, we have to respect each other as human beings. And that means not being an asshole, in short. So is that a rule that Sarah takes from place to place to place? Where did you pick it up? And why did you think it was appropriate? And maybe you don't need to answer that last part. But like, (laughs) is that something that you bring? I obviously don't want to say like, oh, there were some jerks before or whatever. But I mean, because I don't know that. But I wanted to understand like, why did you think that that was necessary to communicate that as leader in a new organization? Yeah, I think, you know, I was trying to be very transparent and frank with my team about my approach to leadership. And I think that for creative industries like communications and marketing, we need to be very, very creative and nimble. And that means sometimes failing and embracing failure. The only way that you can create the safety for people to be creative and to embrace failure is if you know that you're going to have each other's backs, which for me is what the you know assholes policy is really all about, right? It's like, yeah, I'm going to do things. I'm going to float a trial balloon. It's not going to work. It's going to crash. And then I'm going to learn from it and move on. And I'm going to know that my colleagues are going to help me learn from that experience. And then together, we're going to use it to do even better things the next time around. To me, that's what it's all about. And I have never used a swear word on my first day in a job. That was my first time doing that. (laughs) Good Um, job. But, but, you know, people remembered it. So I think it won't be my last time that I use that word in the workplace. Well, I think it's great. And I think it really speaks to empathy leadership, right? That that is really Mm -hmm. the forefront of leadership, at least that I've read for the last five, six years. That's really important, having everyone's back making that good team environment and also, you know, failing fast. You know, that's a, I know it's an entrepreneurial thing on my end, but it is something that a lot of people are afraid to do, especially in a team setting. So kudos on you for that. So now you've been around the block, right? You've done a few things in your day. And so what have you seen that's changed from the time you started in your comms journey to now? And what hasn't changed? So much has changed in terms of the volume of information in particular, right? And the speed at which that information is disseminated. It's just been a significant, significant change, particularly when you layer that on with the decimation of the mainstream media, right? So when we take a look at the traditional role of professional journalists as gatekeepers and curators of information and the two are interconnected, right? One is mm-hmm. <laughs> when it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But really that uh, the increase in the volume of information, the lack of gatekeepers now has, I think, really created an opportunity for us in communications and marketing to help curate information and connect information with people. So I think that's a huge, huge change. Certainly earlier in my career, it all came down to getting on NBC, getting on global before the first commercial break on the 6 p.m. news. And if you did that, you knew you'd connected with like the vast majority of British Columbians. <laughs> that was the win, right? And it's much more complicated now because people are receiving their information from a lot of different sources. And they also want to provide in, they want to provide feedback. They want it to be an engaging experience. Honestly, I think that's a fantastic change. I think that the decimation of journalism is the most negative element of all of this. But I think what is positive is the recognition that people need and deserve information in different formats and want to engage with us around that information. To me, what has remained the same is the power of storytelling, right? Ultimately, for millennia, humans have been moved by head and heart. That's the same. That hasn't changed. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree on the storytelling piece. Now, in terms of the fact that there's so much going in and out of your shop, as it were, how do you keep on top of it, right? Like, because there's so many platforms, so many channels, misinformation. How do you keep sane, for one, and how do you keep track of it all? I don't. <laughs> I think that for me, it's about relying on the team, right? So we set a vision and we're moving towards that vision together. And so I rely very heavily on my team, whether that's my team at BC Housing or um, other public sector organizations with government, nonprofits. But we rely on the people who are delivering the work every day. I'm just here to help facilitate their work. I'm not here to be on top of it. So ultimately, when we think about housing, for example, most of the communications are being delivered by people on the front line, right? Who are having those conversations with neighbors, who are having conversations with people who are accessing housing. It's not something that I can control through a key message in a news release. What I can do is provide the templates, the support, the information to help empower those people to do their jobs. That's great. I mean, I think that is what effective leaders ultimately do, right? You can't do everything yourself and having a great team surround yourself with people that are smarter than you at, at particular things is is important with regards to you had a hashtag on one of your posts motherhood penalty i kind of mm. want to talk about that i you know i'm a father of a, a young ish child she's a preteen now actually and still ultimately not the primary caregiver mm. and i know a lot of my female colleagues have have struggled you know uh, when when balancing career young children and there's a picture of, of Sarah, if you want to go onto her LinkedIn, of, of her holding her kid and, and doing a Zoom call. Can you share about that? Because you clearly have found some success in, in doing this because, you know, you, you are where you are. So anything that you can share on that? Yeah. So I'm a parent of two young kids. I'm very fortunate to have an extremely supportive co-parent and partner and life partner in my spouse. And I know that not everybody has that, but I do. What has been interesting for me is that I have absolutely experienced the motherhood penalty in that I was removed from projects when I when people learned I was pregnant. And there was an assumption made that I couldn't do certain work because I was going to be having children without people asking me, right? I mean, ultimately, I think we need to not make assumptions about people's caregiving responsibilities, not make assumptions about people's abilities and disabilities we need to ask people what they want. And that's how we can really tap into the human potential. So for me, yes, I absolutely experienced the motherhood penalty. It's part of the reason why I'm very, very passionate about it. And I've also now as a leader, being able to come at it from the other side, where particularly, for example, since the pandemic, there've been a number of folks on my team who have had their caregiving responsibilities shift, right? Whether that's for children or for elders. And I really try not to make assumptions about what they want. And so for some people, we've just been able to restructure their work, restructure the requirements, and they want to continue working. They're just doing it at slightly different hours, perhaps. And I think that it's really important that we recognize that. Of course, the other side of it is we need to provide the right supports to people to allow them to really follow what they want to be able to do. And that part of the equation is much more challenging and something that I would say that, uh, you know, as one person, I can't shift. But I think it's really important that we recognize the importance of childcare, support networks, and, you know, a whole host of other options to be able to ensure that people can engage in their caregiving that they want to. And in particular, 
the people who are bearing most of this burden right now are women. So then are you, is it as simple as just asking or, or is there more than that? You did talk about structures because some organizations may not be set up mm-hmm. to like to support even a leader like you doing the ask and then finding out that there's red tape or whatever that that can't happen. Any thoughts around that? Well, that's why we need to focus on systemic change, right? So I'm mm-hmm. in a position right now where I have the power to shift some of those barriers because I'm a member of the executive team. I lead a branch. I can change the work hours for my team in collaboration, of course, with the members of the bargaining unit with you know understanding and respecting the collective agreement. But I have the ability and I have the power to do that. Not everybody does. Ultimately, that's why we need to be looking for more systemic solutions. And those need to have leadership from the top of organizations to stick. But ultimately, leaders need to be listening to and taking feedback from whether it's their employees or the community members or their stakeholders to make sure that they're delivering the solutions that people actually want, right? So for me, I've been able to create the opportunity for a more agile approach to work because of my position and the support of leadership at BC Housing. What I think is really important is that I not make assumptions about what people want within that flexibility. So we create as much flexibility as we can. And then it's a person by person conversation to determine what they need within that flexibility to be able to deliver their best. Do you have any tips for anybody that's maybe mid-career that may not have the power to shift like you do, but mm. do you want to see change? Like, What advice do you have there? Well, the fascinating thing about power is we all have it. Some of us have more and some of us have less, right? So I think it's really important to start by recognizing where you have power. And to focus on how you can use that power to drive change. Now, for me, I'm a white cisgendered woman in an executive position. I've got a lot of power and a lot of privilege. Not everyone has that same amount of power and privilege, but everyone has some. So start by recognizing what your sources of power are and where you can build connections or find allies who can help you advance change. That's great. Thank you very much for that. So I'm going to go kind of back into a bit of your past of the fact that you, you know, have a political past mm-hmm. and, you know, you, you work in a government organization now. And because a lot of our comms folks, I, I know for, for a fact, I have a lot of friends that are in one way, shape or other, they have political leanings and, and they get mm-hmm. involved and, and good on them for doing so. How do you find that balance though, right? When you're doing work that you got to be nonpartisan and you definitely have probably some opinions in your your head. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I always focus on finding areas of where we have shared meaning, right? So I've worked with a wide range of elected officials from a whole bunch of different parties at all orders of government. And I've always focused on finding that area where my organization's objectives overlap with theirs. And people get into politics because they want to make a change in their community, because they want to serve their community. And so there's always something. Like I've never, I have yet to find someone where I couldn't find that area of shared meaning or shared objective. And that's what we focus on. And start from there and keep on working, right? So I also think that's part of the reason why people in communications have a particular value because, and marketing as well, honestly, is because a lot of our work is about listening to audiences listening to stakeholders. That's great. So do you have an example? You don't have to share any names where maybe you were, you know, working on a project and you're like, oh man, the people around the table, 
I don't know how this is going to go. And, you know, you have an objective <laughs> accomplished and you're laughing. So you probably do. And obviously you don't have to name any names, but I, I'd yeah. like to understand how you navigated those waters. Yeah, I'm laughing because I'm actually remembering a specific experience. So when I worked in Ontario, I was working at TVO, which for listeners who are not familiar with it, is a public education agency that part of the way they deliver education is through television programming and current affairs. So exceptional, exceptional organization. I was working there when the provincial government changed from liberal to conservative which for folks who are from Ontario know that that was, you know, that was quite a shift from Wynn to Ford. And we took a look at our programs. We took a look at our service offerings and we focused on what we could deliver that was of value to the incoming government. And the very first time that the new premier walked into the lobby of TVO, he saw me and was like, hey, Sarah. (laughs) And, you know, for, for people that know my background and have Googled me and knowing that, you know, shortly before that, I was working for the new Democrats. They're you know, might find that a bit surprising. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But really, it's because for me, it's all about finding those areas of shared belief. And I was able to do that at Toronto Community Housing. And shortly after that, when I was at TVO, was then working with that same person as the premier. So for me, it's about finding those areas. And I've never been able to not find them. Wow, good for you. Any tips on how to find them? Because I mean, sometimes, especially in today's day and age, where everything seems so polarizing and politicized, Any tips on that? I think sometimes we get distracted by the language that we use or we get distracted by the means. And if we focus on the ends, there's a lot more shared belief there, right? So and we can see that even right now in British Columbia around vaccinations, which is extremely polarizing. And I would say that in BC right now, we can see elected officials of all stripes really focusing on the end goal, which is protecting people from the pandemic. And when they focus on that area, we're able to really see a lot of collaboration and and meaningful and respectful conversations about how we get there. That's very thoughtful. Okay, so I am going to move to our rapid fire round so that we can get to know Sarah as much as some of those folks that you share meeting with have known you. I want to start off with the most delicious thing you've had and or grown from the Cedar Cottage Food Network that you support? I grew some monstrous tomato plants this summer. And there's nothing like What'd a fresh make? tomato. Yeah, you just oh, no, eat it right off the vine? Or? Eat it right off the vine. And at the end of the season, when there was a lot of green ones left, I'd turn them into a salsa. Ooh, green salsa. Green, mm-hmm. green tomato salsa? Mm, yeah. Sounds good. Okay, favorite snack? Chocolate. Dark milk? Oh, dark, dark chocolate all the way. Preferably with a little bit of salt. Mm. Do you prefer biking, swimming, or running? Well, biking's very handy. It can get you a lot of places, so I'm going to go with biking. But I am definitely a fair-weather slow cyclist. I remember <laughs> the first time you and I went for coffee, and you know I'm driving around Vancouver in my car, and you showed up with your bike, and I was like, wow, this is very <laughs> Vancouver right, right now. Are you rom-com, sci-fi, horror, or action? Oh, it depends on the day, but never horror. I'll go uh, most of the time, comedy. We can all use a little bit of extra joy right now, I think. Are you watching anything on, on like streaming comedy, anything that you're watching right now? I have jumped onto the Ted Lasso bandwagon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love that show. <laughs> so good. We actually also finished Brooklyn Nine-Nine on our Netflix. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Healing. 
That is very insightful. And the first person that I've asked, no one has ever said healing. For, <laughs> I've asked this question so many times. Okay. Famous slash inspiring figure, dead or alive, that you could have lunch with. Mm, I would love to go for lunch with my great grandmother who came to this country with little more than a bulb of garlic. A bulb of garlic. That's all she came with. Well, huh? she came with luggage too, but it got lost and she didn't speak English. And so she got she got misdirected on the train and uh, came oh. from Eastern Europe. Yeah. So what is now Poland. Wow. I just would love to know, know more about her story. <laughs> so yeah, I'd like to absolutely. take her for lunch. Yeah. Favorite place for you to get inspired? The beach. Or the forest, preferably a forest beside a beach. If I can do both. Oh, is there such a place? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I love the west coast of the island. Euclid is one of my happy places. So you've got beach and ocean happening right on top of each other in Euclid. Best book you've read your kids? Race Cars. Race Cars. Really, Was that? really good book. And it's about race, oh, yeah. but also oh. race cars. Yes. It's fascinating. It's a really great book. My kids love that book and it's about two cars and it essentially teaches about racial privilege through a story about two race cars. Oh, wow. Great book. We just finished a book called The The War That Saved My Life. Won a Newbery Award. My daughter's a little bit older and it's about mm. a girl with a disability during World War II. And yeah, it was it's an oh, amazing great. book if you ever get a chance. Yeah. I'll add that one to the list for when the kids are a bit older. This one's more for early elementary. Mm-hmm. Something people don't know about Sarah. People might not know, some people know this, people might not know that my name is a unique name because my partner and I merged our names upon marriage. So Vine comes from my birth name and Gold comes from his birth name. And we decided to start our marriage by combining our names. You're the second couple that I know that has done that. It's great. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then do your kids go by Gold Vine? Yes, my kids both have Gold Vine, yes. It's complicated because there was a whole process. So I legally changed my name and had Mm -hmm. to go through the fingerprinting and the whole thing. And then my husband adopted my name upon marriage. So ironically, legally, he has a maiden name because there's no gender neutral term in the law yet for that. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And okay, last question. Uh, What would you want to make sure you pass on to the next generation of Marcom professionals? Curiosity. I think that we can go far if we tap into curiosity, curiosity about our audiences, about ideas, and about how we can make the world a better place. Sarah, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Honor and privilege just to hear you talk and share your experience. So thank you very much. And um, how do people get a hold of you? LinkedIn's probably a good place. I'm the only Sarah Goldfine on there. That's the benefit of my last name. So feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. Okay, well... Thank you, everybody, for listening to another Marketing News Canada episode. This was me, Ted Lau, and Sarah Goldvine, the only Goldvine you'll ever find. And I guess your husband as well. The only one in marketing communications. Only one in marketing (laughs) communications. So thanks again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.